The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. are worthy of celebration, and great achievements doubly so. It cannot be reconfigured into new forms without risk of repeating oneself. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and puppet, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. Tonight's discussion covers the 2002 sci-fi thriller Equilibrium, written and directed by Kurt Wimmer and starring Christian Bale, Tay Diggs, Emily Watson, and Sean Bean. My guest is writer and podcaster Paul Morris, and you join us in a roofless warehouse in the heart of the parole sector. Hello, Paul. Hello, Jeremy. What can you tell me about the meaning of life? The meaning of life? Uh, the concept. Right, not, yes, not, uh, not... You don't want me to say 42. You don't want me to make any Monty Python references. Oh, nothing or, so trite, no. <clears throat> I, I've often heard it said that the meaning of life is to feel... And that if one doesn't feel, <laughs> what is there? Uh, I mean, that's, that's a, that's I, a very I good answer, have, yeah. I personally have no emotions. I, I'm here to be cerebral. I'm here, mini life is to think, oh, to analyse oh, I, I, your surroundings. I saw you have an emotion once. <laughs> I, I saw you bite into a chip and go, ooh, that's a bit hot. Yeah, we don't speak about that. You don't know, you're not, you're not allowed emotions in uh, your part of the world, are you? It's to- Kent. Tory constituency, isn't it? <laughs> oh, a little, little bit of politics there, listener. Um, but we watched the film Equilibrium, the uh, 2002, I should probably remember that at least. Uh, I believe so. Science fiction thriller. Um, it was a film I saw on its original release. It had a very limited cinema release worldwide. And a, a, a stupid but logical reason for that. It's ironic that it is perfectly logical, but also deeply stupid why the film was so limited on on its release. And as a result, it was a box office disaster, even though it wasn't especially expensive. And I remember thinking at the time, this is good. There's nothing actively bad about any of this. It's well done, and it's crisply made and the action's really good and has an interesting idea in it and it's something that has clearly been produced with concern for the central concept and and by someone who cares about what the movie's about but on the other hand it is made almost entirely of recycled parts of other famous dystopian fiction <laughs> yeah. yeah you spotted that oh yeah I mean there's a character called O'Brien I mean, <laughs> they're cun- yeah they're cunningly disguised aren't they um, I mean it makes you wonder if um, if it's some sort of elaborate game for that we're supposed to spot this and 
But I just, I don't know. Judging by the director's other filmography, I don't think he was thinking about it in that level of detail. I think it was, <laughs> I, think there, I think calling a character a brain is a conscious nod to 1984 to say, yes, I know, but this is about something else. And it is, a, and it is about something else to 1984 and about something else than Fahrenheit 451. It's not completely retreading the same ground. But it is reusing a lot of the elements of both of those and Brave New World and We and a lot of other dystopian fiction. The Glass Bead Game, I think, is probably mixed in there as well. Um, but it has an amazing cast, I think. Yes. These people are either not busy at the time or they... They didn't insist in seeing the script first. I think a lot of it was was people expecting a, a you know a nice payday. Got Christ- they wanted some of that sweet Matrix money. Exactly. I mean, the, something else that the film owes a big debt to is the Matrix. This is uh, very post Matrix in the way that the action scenes are executed and portrayed. So we have Christian Bale, Emily Watson, uh, Sean Bean, Sean Pertwee. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, Angus McFadden, who's not quite so big a name, have a brief cameo by David Hemmings, and most shockingly of all, and I think this is take. I think basically anyone who saw it in the UK at the time, this would have taken them right out of the film. A brief appearance by Brian Conley. The is there? Yes. The, the, Brad, the Bradley Walsh of his day, Saturday Night Light yes, Entertainment I, King. Appear, yes, I remember that. I thought I'd appears in I this. I'd never forget German shot uh, early two thousands uh, sci fi action movie in a, a brief supporting role, and it's so well, strange. I? And he's not even credited under his correct name. They spell his name wrong. <laughs> I remember his gurning presence from from the time. I would have thought it would. Oh well, I look forward to you reminding me where that was yeah, when we get there. He left the Grimleys <laughs> to do this movie. <laughs> do you remember the Grimleys? Um, I, it rings a bell. A, a nostalgic seventies set sitcom, which grew out of a pilot where he had the uh, the unfit main character in perpetual conflict with his PE teacher played by Jack D. But when they got round mm. to doing the series, Jack D wasn't going to do it. So they got Brian Conley. Yep. As uh, as Morgan Wise would have said on one of their Christmas specials, you, you couldn't get Jack D. No. Well. But later they couldn't get Brian Conley either, and they wrote him out by uh, killing off his character when he jumps on a trampoline on a sports day and impales himself on a javelin. Because How did this pass me by? Uh, it was an ITV sitcom and no one watched it. <laughs> oh, yeah, and it had Brian Conley in it, so of course I would have done anything. I would have walked over broken glass to avoid it. So the film starts with uh, a detailed explanation of the world in which we're going to spend the next two hours, that there has been a third, <laughs> there has been a third world war, and yes. um, it was uh, pretty bad. And as a way of preventing a fourth and potentially final world war, the Grammaton clerics... Uh, were founded as a new line of justice who wipe out emotion wherever they find it. And everyone takes a special uh, pill every day called Librium, 
uh, which they call their interval to suppress emotion and um, art and uh, literature and anything that might elicit an emotional response is systemically destroyed. And on top of that, the clerics are trained in a special form of combat called gun cutter, which is a special way of shooting people, uh, which uh, allows you to maximize the number of people you can shoot while minimizing yourself as a target. So there's lots of cutter moves and shooting people at the same time. Yes, it's wonderful, wonderfully subtle and artistic how all this exposition got across so seamlessly. Yeah. I mean, clearly it, and uh, laboriously. Yeah. Were you keen on the movie? I, uh, we're not really supposed to talk about our feelings until the end, are we? Or indeed at all. I should be, hey, I, we live in a I, free I society. Tr- you can talk about your feelings whenever you want. I normally try to be... Um, no, I don't have to actually have to try. You've you've uncovered some real gems on this podcast for me to watch. Some un, unfairly neglected and overlooked gems. Thank you. And um, I hoped at the beginning that I would feel the way you uh, described it initially. It's you know what, I, that I it, could tell that it was it was, I, that it was derivative or no 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 before you before you got to that point I was I wasn't letting the um, the budget limitations put me off or. I was hoping that it would live on the, it would thrive on the strength of its ideas, but of course it didn't have any ideas. No, I, I've got to be honest. I, I might as well say this at the beginning. I really didn't like it. I, okay. I didn't find it's not it's not unwatchable, but it annoyed me. All, <laughs> um, not just the uh, derivative nature of the ideas, but the way they didn't mesh together, the way they were presented, and such. Um, I didn't. Well, I tell you what the biggest problem is. I didn't really believe any of it for a second. That's quite a fundamental problem. The... I've watched a lot of science fiction and fantasy, and I don't mean I, I don't mean I normally believe it. As in, I, I think they actually went out there and found a dragon, or, or that I, or that uh, they went to the future to film Blade Runner. I mean, I couldn't suspend my disbelief of this society. Right. I didn't believe this society could ever have evolved or been created so i had no investment in any things that are happening in it it's quite a fundamental problem it's um when you go when you swing for a big idea like this i think you need to in the presentation you have to go to the other extreme and show us some real believable people living in this world to make it feel real and truthful they have to show that the the world that they're constructing is actually workable Yes. Yes, you, you have to... Yes, there are two sides to it. You have to be able to believe it. Logic. If your con- brain is constantly thinking, but that couldn't happen, but that could... But how about... Why would... If you're, if you're constantly tripping up on implausibilities, that's going to be a problem. And if you don't feel... If it doesn't feel real, sort of feel plausible. I think it might part of the problem might be the characters that they choose to tell the story through they're all at a certain level of this society they're not they're all in within the 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 tetragrammaton law enforcement um system and we never meet really any normal citizens there's a reason why 1984 is told in perspective of winston smith and 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 so on Mm, because he's a regular normal human being 
Yeah. So I've got that out of the way. <laughs> I had to tell you. But <laughs> in in Fahrenheit four five one, yes, the main character is one of the main law enforcement yep. people reinforcing the dictatorship. Yep. As here, but that said, we also have the supporting character of Clarice, the um, the woman who teaches him about books and things. So we have that. We have that outside. We have the person within the system and the person looking from outside the system. And we don't have that outsider here. We have the character of Mary, who spends almost the entire room in a single. Who spends almost the entire film in a single room. Yeah, yeah. I haven't got it off my chest. I think well, as as you take me through the story, I will be able to elucidate my dissatisfaction. Okay. Well, it starts with uh, a raid on a secret gallery by the uh, the clerics. And there's a big firefight, and uh, in a, an exciting uh, bit of choreography, they cut the lights, blow the hinges to the door, just as lead cleric John Preston leaps through, skidding through on the door into complete darkness, mm. and then takes out all the rebels with his gun carter skills. Um, an appraiser comes and authenticates various items that they have, like the the real Mona Lisa, hmm. which is then burned. Yes, it's it, that's uh, yeah. They'll just set out their stall with with a big, of uh, dramatic visual representation of what of what we're up against here, yeah. don't they? This is the um, maybe the least of the three works <laughs> of. of TV or film in which the Mona Lisa is destroyed. I was. We were wondering how many, how many there have been. Obviously, we all saw one at Christmas. Well, the other one That's is the Doctor it. Who serial City of Death, which kind of counts oh. counts multiple times because there are five Mona Lisas destroyed and they're all original. And they're all real because yeah. of time travel. That's, that's a proper science fiction idea, and it's just a throwaway. Yeah. Joke. But it's also an original idea. The yes. idea of someone someone who knew that the Mona Lisa would be valuable getting Leonardo to paint five more so that he can sell all six to six different private buyers and make loads of money out of it. Now that you've brought up Doctor Who, I, I feel, feel less um, ashamed of the fact that I may have to reference the Macro Terror later on. But carry on, Jeremy. Oh, yeah. It is a bit like the Macro Terror. But the Macro Terror... I was say the Macro Terror is very like the Prisoner. But the Prisoner came after the Macro Terror. Although... So- Ian Stuart Black, who wrote the Macro Terror, had previously written an episode of Danger Man for Patrick McGowan, which prefigured some of the ideas of uh, the prisoner. The idea of this you know, totalitarian colony where everyone has to be happy, that kind of thing. Did he really? He did. Oh. Again, with, Mag- with the prisoner, I don't think it was a completely original idea. The way he did it was very original. Hmm. Um. um- you skipped over it there, but maybe we should talk about it. The, um, as I say, they've they've not completely seamlessly filched ideas from a variety of sources and tried to um, build a whole society out of that. But the the gunplay seem I think yeah. is the most contrived addition. It doesn't really thematically mesh with anything else we see here, and is obviously just an excuse to get some Matrix style visuals because that was the hot. Mm. Um, filmmaking technique at the time. What do you think of the the short explanation we're given as to why? Because I mean, the main reason we can get these wonderful 
bullet time acrobatic slow motion stunts in the matrix is because it's not real so of course yeah. although there is some internal logic in the matrix on the other from from the flip side we they are they do have license to show us anything they can dream up yeah here they've had to create <laughs> describe explain why christian bale can perform like a virtual reality well keanu reeves and i it's it, they, it it's not um there's not there's nothing with the gun cutter that breaks rules of uh logic or physics or anything like that it's more the choreography and the performance of it i think and it was created by kurt wimmer the writer director in his back garden i think it does fit thematically with the idea because it's it's about having a person perform as logically and efficiently in a firefight as possible removing the emotional element this is these are the, these are the moves you can learn that will make you most effective at killing rebels not going crazy with a machine gun but you know du- you know ducking and weaving around and these are the the forms you can adopt when you've got you know, there's one guy there and one guy there and it's all very efficient and ruthless right. and cold so and and to be so to be fair there yeah it's on one it's logical efficient ruthless and cold but it's also with the the emphasis on the monasteries and and the, the sort of the martial arts nature of the practice of the practicing that we see yeah i suppose there's supposed to be a, a different kind of emotionless um it's supposed to re- make us think of the uh, transcendental states that you're supposed to get it, get into to to do real world martial arts. The that's well, that's not how I saw it to be honest. Mm. Um, because if anything, the characters in the film are in being encouraged not to think and not to reach for more complex modes of living. But you know, do as you're told and stop thinking about elephants. That kind of thing. I think the idea that one is supposed to reach towards a transcendental state with this, I think it's more that it's obedience to a code and the perhaps the nullification of the self in the face of the um, uh, overpowering state. Right. I can't really explain what I was getting at because I don't actually know anything about uh, martial arts. I was wondering how you were going to finish that sentence. And the the combination of the mental state and the... the, I'm sure I have a feeling that you're supposed to tune out emotions and just concentrate on... Concentrate on the the moves and the the physicality. I don't know. As, as I also know little about martial arts. I do know people who do, and maybe it's worth asking I, them. I've watched the Karate Kid, so you'd think I'd know. There's something about painting a fence. I mean, that's all very well if you want to have your chores done and have all your cars polished. Hmm. But I, I, I think that going, going did... back to the Matrix, I think there's more sort of <laughs> philosophically to it than that. Well... You believe it. Mr. Miyagi? <laughs> Christian Bale. Oh, yes. Well, 
I mean, if you want to have uh, like a cold, emotionless uh, multiple murderer as the lead role in your film, you call Christian Bale. And what about the camera work? It's it's not bad, is it? I was I was no. going with it at this stage. I was thinking he's uh, he's successfully um, overcoming the budget limitations. I mean, it cost twenty million dollars, um, and it was shot mostly in Germany, using a lot of the old fascist architecture, mm-hmm. and um, in uh, studios near Berlin. And it doesn't look cheap. It looks budget conscious where they've been thinking about how to best spend the resources that they have, rather than reaching too far and then looking rubbish. They thought, well, we were thinking we only had 10 million, but we've actually got 20, so what can we do that's extra on top of what we could already do? There are, like, there are crowd scenes where you, you can see they filmed carefully, so you just have like four or five people walking backwards and forwards past the camera, between the camera and the, the main actors because they can't afford any more than that um so there's there's tricks all, used all the way through this was Vimmer's first film as a feature director he'd made a tv movie called one tough bastard and he'd also worked on the film of uh, michael crichton's sphere and the remake of the thomas crown affair so he had some experience with top level action sci-fi filmmaking hmm so he he certainly studied that closely and learned from it as in terms of of how to make this work. Um, I don't think it's ever betrayed by its production. I don't think. So we visit the the city of Libria, and it's it's the classic dystopia. There's lots of uh, let's say it's all designed like thirties fascist buildings. Yeah, um, controlled from one vast monolithic building, Allah. 1984, the Ministry of Truth. And uh, whose face is on everything but uh, the patron saint of mid mid to low budget sci-fi action (laughs) movies, Sean Pertwee. Mm -hmm. Alfred's butler Batman. Batman's butler Alfred. (laughs) He was was, was in a TV show for five years as Alfred. And he was actually very good. Um, and he is, fa- and he's father, the big, the big brother figure. I mean, it's like, yeah, we we get it. You've you've read yeah. you've read George Orwell, okay. Um, and he's on this long, never-ending lecture about the the philosophy of their society and how important it is to rat out sense criminals and um, to the sense police and uh, to the Ministry of Sense. Which would be a great name for an album. Um, and there are even children. There are even child informers. At one point, we see a child dobbing in his dad to the clerics, and there are armed guards everywhere to make sure everyone's safe. Yeah. Um, and uh, John Preston has a meeting with his superior Dupont, played by uh, Angus McFadden. And uh, while there, he misuses the term prodigal, which annoyed me. He refers to him as the prodigal son. And no, that's that's not what that means. <laughs> but it turns out that Preston has been widowed for four years because uh, his wife was a sense criminal and he informed on her. And when he did, he felt nothing. No. Um, Preston's 
uh, partner is Errol Partridge. <laughs> which is, I, I think... Name, name to conjure. Yeah, I mean, that's a good name. But that name is too cool for a movie like this. Yeah, Errol Partridge. Attorney, uh, Errol Partridge, P.I. Ah, yep. I think calling the main character John Preston, that fits. That's like a nice... It's a sort of a bland, yeah. straightforward name, but not yeah, it's a, completely Jeff, nothing. Jack Reacher. That's what you could imagine yeah. a series of John Preston novels. By yeah. some. I mean, what uh, Errol? I mean, just calling him Partridge—that's that's difficult. And he's played by the other patron saint of low to mid-budget sci-fi and action yeah. movies, Sean Bean. In comes Sean Bean. So the stop, the clock starts ticking. Yeah. Literally minutes to live whenever he's in a movie. Has he ever? Which is actually, uh, yeah, I can think of a film that Sean Bean is in that is actually a sci-fi movie, where he lives to the end of the film. Mm-hmm. The Martian. Ah. Oh. Which I think everyone survives at the end of The Martian, because there's only one person I think ever in any real danger, but he's one of the mission control people, and they make a joke during the movie about Lord of the Rings, which I thought was hilarious. I. Such a shame because Sean Bean was really good. He um, he's a great actor. This, yeah, in this um, he uh, he's the only person. It's the most believable performance in the entire film. Almost everybody else is playing, <laughs> is playing sci-fi, or or baddie, or some combination of. Whereas he's so incredibly re- human. He's play. He's giving. Yeah. He's giving the Peter Cushing performance because Peter <laughs> Cushing would. So Sora said this before. Peter Cushing would t- treat every script as though it was, a, a, you know, the work of a great master, and he would treat it very seriously and play everything as though it was, you know, the, a new West End play. And I think Sean Bean is doing that. He's playing it completely seriously and not treating it as you know, oh, like a B movie I'm doing for the cash. No, this is a proper movie. This is a serious, prestigious film on a serious subject. The only slight problem is because he seems real. It just and he, and yet somehow he's uh, he's not just the everyman character like the Winston Smith or, or one of the underground. He's supposed to be another, you know, an elite almost at the same level as Christian Bale. But nobody else we meet inside the system has any anywhere near the humanity of Sean Bean. So it just creates a strange disconnect right from the beginning. But uh, for me, well, it turns out that Partridge is. A sense criminal that he's been heading off into the nethers, uh, the parole quarter. Yes, um, and uh, Preston finds him there, reading a book of poetry. That's T. S. Eliot, isn't it? Uh, oh, what was it? No, isn't it? Um, tread softly, for you tread on my dreams. That's what he says. He does. Well, I can look it up later and then put a message on the. Uh, <laughs> In the podcast notes saying, actually, it was Philip Larkin. Yates. Yates, okay. Was that before or after Operation Golden Age? A <laughs> little Doctor Who yeah. joke for you there, listener. Such a deep cut, it even took me a, a moment. It would have been after, obviously, after he'd um, uh, gone to that Buddhist retreat. Yeah. By the way, I mean, where what's, he, what's this region called again? The Nethers. I mean, yeah. this is another... Another cliche: the the unoccupied, the neutral zone, the um from the slum, from the, the man in the high castle, the bit that inexplicably 
this totalitarian fascist regime have managed have, have not succeeded. I mean, in this sort of fiction, it is possible to plausibly create a reason why there is a, why the extent of the regime only reaches so far, and believably make us <clears throat> conjure up an, an area where free people live. But it it just seems completely unexplained here. We don't know how far away it is or where. It just seems to be you know, a few minutes from <laughs> the centre of this city. An area that looks virtually identical. Well, it's... it's With a few fences and gates and the suddenly slums, the other side of it. It's the old East German neighbourhoods that haven't been reconstructed at all and therefore are good shooting locations. But it reinforces the idea that's revealed later on that... The, the whole idea of the sense crime and the, the tetragrammaton exists only as a means of control. That if they were working more uh, without emotion, why would there be any poverty? And yet there is. Yes. Now, I'm that's not a saying... a fair I'm, reading I'm, of what we've shown. I'm uh, not saying that's what's intentional. <laughs> I'm saying that's how you can justify it if you're trying to explain why you like the movie, but you can't beyond it's really cool when he shoots lots of people. Hmm. You could read it like that. I'm going to come back to that point later on when we reach a certain plot point. Um, Partridge talks about how... Or, or rather, Partridge and Preston talk about how with the... Uh, with the... Uh, uh, the Grammaton, there's no war or murder or jealousy or rage anymore. But there's also nothing worth living for. There's no life, there's no happiness, there's no art. And um, Preston executes Partridge, shooting him through the book. Ah. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, indeed. Didn't quite follow what's happening in this scene, with Sean Bean clumsily manoeuvring for his gun, in full view of Christian Bale and knowing that he could see his hand creeping towards it. It didn't quite. I think the idea is that he's deliberately work. provoking him into killing him. Okay. Because he knows. Oh, he... you're you're determined to be very fair to this film. Okay. <laughs> by that point, he kn he knows he's caught. His alternative his alternatives are killing Preston being captured and executed or being shot dead on the spot and the best way to try and persuade Preston of the importance of what he's doing is to get Preston to kill him and then have to live with the consequences yes but that's the sort of way a character in a, in a fiction behaves not the way a real person behaves well, but yes well, you might you might be right that within this world, that's what he's thinking. No one said that Kurt Wimmer was Ray Bradbury or George Orwell mm. or the other one. Why is he going out to the nethers to read his books? Do we do we know? I mean, why? Oh, the same reason. Why doesn't he? Why doesn't he hide them under the? The same way, reason that Winston went to the prole quarter, I suppose. Mm. Oh, because that's what people because do in this sort of. Yeah. <laughs> because because Wimmer read 1984 and thought, yeah, I, I, yeah, I'll have a go. Yeah. Everybody, of course, keeps their stash... Oh, well, all the people with a secret keep it hidden behind a false wall in this film. And I couldn't work out if that's a, a metaphor, an, 
for something because we keep seeing it again and again and again literal false walls with with people's is it like is it like the barrier in the back of their mind which is shielding their real feelings and thoughts from the compartmentalizing your life because you can... I've mentioned this at the wrong point <laughs> he could have had that that's what I'm saying Sean Bean could have put up a, a partition wall in his flat and hidden his Yates or T.S. Eliot behind that but for some reason he went and read it in a abandoned factory and look where it got him Preston gets a new partner Brandt played by mm-hmm. Tay Diggs who is very intuitive and on the verge of cracking a smile almost the whole time yep uh, don't know what the smile is provoking the smile considering he has no emotions but carry on well again that's part of the point of the story yeah, I knew you'd say that but but that is that is literally <laughs> what is what is said at the end of the movie um and uh, before but if they're on drugs to suppress their emotions if they were just being encouraged or forced to suppress their emotions if they're just being encouraged forced to act as though they had no emotions then yes they would keep breaking through but this is supposed to be science fiction so if there is some mechanical device in place that keeps this system this system working this completely unworkable system working then, then why do people keep breaking through that? They well, they drop out. They drop out and they go off and they live in the nethers. No, but I mean, why does what's his what's his new Brant sidekicks Brant? Why does Brant show so many different emotions consistently throughout the course of the film? Because did they not tell Ty Tay Diggs? It could well. It could be what the premise was. It could be just bad direction. It could be an actor who's not used to being that inexpressive because he's better known as a stage well, actor. Of course, um, no act. No actors are used to being that inexpressive. And again, I'm getting ahead of myself. But really, do is it a good idea for a work of fiction to present with a world where nobody has any emotions? Do we really want to watch that for? an hour and 47 minutes but it's kind of fundamentally setting yourself up for a fall just from the off but if it's about a character whose emotions are slowly breaking through then you get that you get you get a source of conflict there surely we see that in christian bale yes his performance is carefully judged so that we can see his arc and we always know where he is at any given moment on it i wouldn't say i didn't get the same feeling from anybody else none the of the film, none frankly. of the other characters really have an arc <laughs> in terms of the development of their personality or the range of emotion that they are displaying brandt because i mean the reveal at the end of the movie with dupont being the one in charge and being a sense criminal himself but he's in charge so it doesn't matter with brandt being his right hand man it made sense that Brandt wasn't was a sense criminal as well, and wasn't taking his intervals. I, and he's just is that... and he's just not very good at being completely emotionless. So there's little. Sorry, is is, is that clearly explained? Because that's I didn't. He's got a big statue in his office at the end. You're not allowed statues. Right. They're, they're too, is that the only? They're too, they're too uh, you know stimulating. Okay, let's carry on. I'll make a note of it can't go anywhere for stimulating statues in Berlin. (laughs) 
all over the place. Have them on street corners. Um, Preston's son also um, firstly calls his father by name because uh, partly out of, I think, the removal of the emotional connection. And also there's only one real father, and that's Sean Pertwee, mm. as, as we all know. And he also said that um, he saw his classmate crying, so he dobbed him in. Mm. Um, Preston's having flashbacks to his wife's arrest. And weirdly, Preston's wife is played by two different actors in the course of the movie, depending on different scenes. There's the scenes of her arrest and the scenes of just flashbacks of her. It's a different actor. And I don't know right. why. I think it might be availability. Uh, yeah. Because they, if, the two look very alike. Or it could if be it was some, a proper or, film, I'd assume they were up to some clever, um, unreliable narrator tricks or. But, unreliability uh, but no. of memory. I don't like unreliable narrator. It's too much like cheating. You don't do that sort of thing, do you? Me? Uh, no, I've. No. Good. Good. <laughs> it's. I mean, you have to use it very sparingly, mm. or otherwise, if every book has an unreliable narrator in, then why bother? Yes, it's yes. I don't listen to lies. Um, <laughs> so John wakes up and um, he's going to take his morning interval, but he drops it and it breaks. Yes, design flaw. Slippery, I... slippery fingers. How how convenient for the film's purposes that they're in easily breakable glass capsules rather than any other form which would not allow which would and just look at the it from the other angle. How often must this happen? How does it when it relies on when this system relies on people vo voluntarily taking remembering to take this. Well, they have the Drug they have the alarm that on goes a off. regular base. The alarm that goes off, and everyone suddenly stops and, they t and takes their interval in the street. I know because that looks visually looks cool, very arresting. Yes, it's like they've been in Rise of the Cybermen when everyone gets the. Um... Yes, yeah, see, even even Doctor <laughs> Who borrows from Equilibrium. <laughs> I mean, there's there's a line you can draw between uh, the Matrix. And this movie, and John Wick, in the development of, yeah. of action movies and uh, I, action choreography. I'd like to know what the first film was that ever showed a, a wide shot of a crowd scene where everybody stops as one, because it's a very arresting visual. Well, I but mean, I, it wasn't this. It looks so. there's, there's bits of Metropolis that look a little like that. Right, that's um, going back a long way. Yeah, and, and Metropolis again is another. Well, Metropolis has been ripped off by everyone, so it's not really mm -hmm. fair. But um, there's a lot of Metropolis in this as well. There's not enough robots. Yes, I mean, I shouldn't. This is the least of my worries, but the city looks so much like nowhere in particular. It's difficult to imagine how our current world end up looking like this. It might as well be set on another planet, but that's that's very low down my list of concerns have you not been to it, that's it it doesn't feel like it's it's a visual it's yet another reason why it doesn't feel like it's evolved from reality the reality we inhabit well it, it's ironic that that is that then the design of it is based on real buildings in real places it's mm. just that 
th- those those small quarters of Berlin and Rome expanded to be the size of a city. So there is there's kind of a thread of logic behind it. I, I understand what you mean that it doesn't con- it's it's hard to feel it convincing. But you know, I think the idea what it, it works if you squint. I don't know why that bothers me in this film, but it doesn't in Blade Runner. All I can say is, well, with, it, it with Blade Runner, the idea is that it's the the new city built on top of the old one, because yeah. there's a lot of old exist like the Bradbury Building, existing buildings sort of repurposed. Um, what about um, the Fifth Element? I haven't seen it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. I mean. It's fine. <laughs> it's not great. Um, Preston heads off with Brandt to stop off at Equilibrium to get a replacement dose because he's run out. But yep. uh, it's it's early closing today. Oh. oh, no. There's so many design flaws in this system. I know. Why is it early closing? This... Why are they closed in the morning? Um and they go off on... so many easily avoidable ways in which this system could break down in a million different ways on a daily basis. Well, but well, never mind. That then reminds me of THX one one three eight, yet another film I've covered on the podcast. Yeah, which has this futuristic dystopia, which is falling apart because no one is bothering to maintain it properly. That sounds better. That's how the real world works. Things fall apart. People don't. Anyway, never mind. Because it's 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 <laughs> it's just been there for so long that no one really knows or cares, and it's kind of only working because of inertia. There's no one actually in charge of the dystopia at all. If right. you want to escape, you can. Oh, you've made me a hundred times more interested in, interested in THX one one three eight than I ever have been before. So I shall uh, I shall make a point of checking that out. As now. I said during the podcast, it's the only George Lucas. Uh, there's there's only one George Lucas film with a robot that masturbates people and it had to be that one <laughs> and he made the point of adding it into the special edition <laughs> um, so Brandt and Preston go on another bust and they find an illegal mirror frame and a secret room full of stuff and um, a woman Mary O'Brien who is arrested and is played by Emily Watson. Yes. Earning herself some fast cash. <laughs> and why not? She was supposed to be playing the lead in uh, Amelie, the French film. Ah, right. It was written yes. for her. And then Jean Pierre Jeunet asked, Oh, does she actually speak French? No. Ah, so they had to uh, change the script a bit. I read an interview with her just the other week, talking about the strange course of her career mm. and the decisions she's made and whether she had any regrets. But um, I don't think this film popped up in it, but it bloody well should have done. She's fine. I mean, you know, there's no shame in doing a you know a job of work for some quick cash if you're not doing anything to disgrace yourself. She spends almost the entire movie in a single room. Just dialogue scenes with Christian Bale, a great actor to work with, I'm sure. I mean, I can imagine she probably doesn't give it much thought at all. 
No, no. One way or the other. Lucky her. Lucky her. Um, O'Brien talks to Preston about the meaning of life and how it's important that feeling needs to predominate over simply perpetuating one's existence. That yeah, that sense and emotion are the reason for living. It's a fair point. I mean, we can't argue with that. But on the other hand, it's not a blindingly a blind revelation for the audience. It's not ah. something that's going to make us go to bed feeling like we've just had our eyes open. For, maybe not for you and me, but for the kind of audience <laughs> who are watching this for it being an action movie, who don't normally watch more complex um, uh, epistemological, perhaps, is, might be the right word, films, or phenomenological. Um, <laughs> you know, the, people aren't used to thinking like that. I mean, I remember when uh, Inception came out and friends of mine were going to see it and I found Inception to be <laughs> pretty straightforward and well-made but not particularly exceptional but friends of mine had difficulty with it because they simply weren't used to watching films that complex and i had to draw draw diagrams to explain the the plot to them (laughs) not that these people are unintelligent they're as uh, as intelligent as me if not more so they're just not used to that level of complexity in the art they consume and hopefully the kind of audience who would have been attracted to Equilibrium because it's a sci-fi action movie might then have had some thoughts about, you know, the meaning of life, the importance of art and culture that they would not have otherwise considered. Now, this point, this very small debate at the centre of of this film between Mary O'Brien and Christian Trevor Preston, or whatever his name is, John, John, John Preston. John Preston. It's not as exciting as Trevor. Uh, is this is this supposed to be teasing out a wider point relevant to our society beyond simply the hyper-constructed world of the film itself? Are we supposed to be? Is it supposed to be thought-provoking for us, or is it just supposed to be thought-provoking for John Preston? I think it's supposed to be. Are we supposed to feel that, by extension, by analogy, we, a lot of us, are just existing rather than living for some reason? I Because th- Pot- is there a point yes. to this film? Has it been made for a reason other than to entertain us? I think that Vimmer genuinely cares about what the film is saying and he wants to make a point. And he also wants to have an exciting action movie. And he doesn't see why he can't do both at the same time. And neither do what I. Do you think, what do you think his main point is, though? The importance of feeling, of acknowledging your emotions. And being yeah, open with one's emotions. Right. So is he... Is, but dystopian fiction is supposed to be an extrapolation of... The, the real world it's a warning that if we continue down a particular path if particular facets of our civilization continue in a particular direction we'll end up here so i'm just wondering whereas superficially this appears to be a society uh, the society is created here 
is founded on one single decision, which is made in response to something that hasn't actually happened in our world. You see what I mean? In response to a hypothetical Third World War, they have take, made a hypothetical decision of how to avoid this happening again, which doesn't really bear any relation to our world. So this is why I think there's a disconnect. And it's, and I think the power of the message, whatever it is, is lost because the relevance to us, to we viewers, is not immediately apparent. So it's not something you really feel. You don't identify with John Preston because his, his life is too far removed from, from our own. Yes, I see what you mean. I mean, I would counter by saying that the, the concept is simple and straightforward enough that it's easy to grasp and to think your way into. You're right in that it, it doesn't have that, that thing, that, that connection that the audience needs. I could imagine that Vimmer um, saw increasing alienation in society, increasing separation in society. I mean, it's a, in a way that kind of prefigures ideas of social media and the internet and the way people uh, communicate remotely. Uh, increasing alienation between classes and generations. And he's extrapolating that. But having the trigger be a war and then say, oh no, we can't have war, we can't have World War Three anymore, so we're going to abolish all emotion. So that will stop people being angry. But ironically, that doesn't solve the issue of why wars exist. Um, because there's, well, because there's, there's wars often exist because of poverty and poverty still exists you've you've mentioned that angle twice but i I, it's not something i saw borne out in the film itself i saw nothing really i saw nothing about class i saw nothing about but the nethers exists the nethers is the the lower class proles um sector unless i unless i wasn't paying attention in a vital in a, a development earlier, not on in the film, I possibly. I mean, it, it could it could just pass you by if yeah. if you if you blink for too long. Um, and the the do the proles do the nether <laughs> do the proles in the nethers not get their supply of uh, little yellow uh, what, librium? What, what does it look like? What's that, what's that stuff you put on children's chests? Vicks vapor rub that sort of thing. So little capsule, more like TCP to when, me. When, when they've got a, got a cold. Anyway, carpol, carpol. Do they? That's... Do they not get? Do they not get that? Carvel. The proles. Is is are there whole groups of society outside the wall, who are free, perforce because they don't get the drugs? Please, please tell me, Jeremy. I'm... You're dying to know. Um. Well, because I didn't pick this up from the film. Maybe I. I think. You can assume that, but I don't think there's enough said to uh, enforce the idea that there's like a a society outside the cities or what form that's going to have. We're just told that there there is this area that's there's this less policed underclass area. Yeah, but it's quite important. For me, it's quite important to know whether these people are... Who lives out there? Are they... 
they're not the resistance, right? The resistance is, the resist- is a smaller the resistance group who actually goes in hiding. The resistance goes there to hide. They live, but it's, yeah, it's, they can hide among the yeah, because they are because they're less policed because they are the the drones. Have you seen my? Do you take my point about why I don't believe in this society? What jobs are people doing? We understand that they're just existing; they're not feeling. Fine, I get that. But if it's going to be an allegory for for the way the world is structured, where is the the class system? Uh, shouldn't it be a if nobody has to work? It should be a, a utopia. But we don't see much about the work. We only see about the law enforcement. There are cars. There still has to be car repair. There's plumbing. There still have to be plumbers. Right. Can you imagine how much better it would have been if we'd just seen, had a few scenes showing us everyday life rather than that voiceover in the first yeah. few minutes? I mean, it might have blown the budget. Someone's car. But, uh, someone's car breaks down. They have to take it to a mechanic. That that you know, and it and they have an interaction, and it's very cold and neutral. I've never seen a better uh, a example of a case where I wanted them to show it rather than telling it. And I don't like boiling it down to that phrase, but sometimes it's, it, it's just inescapably true. Mm. Brevity is the soul oh. of wit. Where did we get up to? <laughs> uh, possibly <laughs> the oh, Preston's, just found a cache uh, of... Preston uh, still hasn't ha- taken his interval. And he yeah. has a nightmare and uh, wakes up just as the dawn comes up. And does, uh, is that the point where he takes the film off the window? Because all the windows have this translucent film over it, so you can't see the view. And he takes the, the film off and there's a stunning view of the dawn rising over the city with a rainbow. And it's... Uh, he... Uh, is is staggered by it and he goes off to take his interval and stops himself and drops the little capsule and treads on it mm. and he's made the decision now that he he's he's not going back he he sees the value in sense crime uh, at the office um, he decides he's going to rearrange his desk which is the first sign of madness um and um, you can see that he's already struggling to cope. He's struggling to conceal his sense of crime from people around him. Brandt notices that he's he's rearranging his desk for greater efficiency, so he says, but it's it's going to be different from everyone else's, and everyone is supposed to have identical lives so that no one is unhappy and um, there's no cause of conflict. Um he finds another sense lair and there's a disco ball and a Newton's cradle and a snow globe and he puts on a Beethoven record and hears music for the first time mm. and he cries he does and then it immediately cuts to the house burning down because he has to destroy it and again that's Fahrenheit that's lifted directly from Fahrenheit 451 <laughs> It is the the main difference is, the, yeah, it's bit it's bigger, isn't it? Because in Fahrenheit four five one, it's certain it's not all art and all literature. It's 
it's certain outlawed books. It's because it's all books. It belief. is all books in Fahrenheit four five one. Is it in well in the film specifically? There's even a bit where the the fire captain says, "No, we have to burn all the books, Montag," and he holds up a copy of Mein Kampf. All the books. There's a scene where Montag reads a newspaper, but it's all done as uncaptioned comic strip. Because there's a lot of that. That's why Fahrenheit 451 is so great because there's so much detail of how this world would actually work. It is. It is pushing the ideas we've seen in Fahrenheit 451 and 1984 and so on further because it's not just certain ideas or even all ideas or all knowledge. It's you know what I mean. It's, Any, it's everything. Anything that provokes e- anything any that sensory response. Any. <laughs> yeah. In a sense, as a science fiction idea, I can see the attraction because all these other more subtle takes on ways of, of, of thought control have already been done. So where, how, do you, how do you make it any bigger? So I just think that, uh, yeah, well, you know what I think. <laughs> um, and they find that um, there's dogs outside. And that uh, some of the sense criminals die trying to protect the dogs from the the clerics, which none of the others understand. Why would you bother protecting an animal? What what's the point in that? They're not going to eat them. So yeah. they decide to just machine gun all the dogs, all the lovely little puppy dogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, apart from one little puppy that runs up to Preston, the, the nice. The nicest dog of all. Yeah, it's cu- the cutest little puppy that ever there was. Yes, they, they're not, not particularly feral, are they? Normally in dystopian um, societies. No, they're pets. That's the whole idea. They are extreme. Yeah. Um, and and Preston says, "Oh, I'll, uh, I'll, yeah, I'll take this puppy away, and uh, we'll test him for disease because there could be an outbreak of disease, and you know we should you know, make sure about that." Oh, okay. Bye. To be fair, I did like this scene. It was tense. Yeah. I enjoyed the way it unfolded in an action film style. Um, and also it's uh, been announced that sense offenders are now just going to be executed straight away. Um, no trial, no uh, process, just pushed up against the wall and shot. Which apparently is father's will, according to Brandt. Um, and uh, Preston is rather, uh, Preston is asked to participate in this and um, changes his mind. Uh, but he uh, retrieves some of O'Brien's belongings, including a ribbon, and uh, he starts sniffing at it, which is, uh, I mean, okay. Disturbing. Um, he starts going into the nethers and is watched by Brand, so he's repeating the cycle with uh, Partridge. In fact, he uses the to, <laughs> to make it perfectly clear that events are repeating themselves, but he's his position in them has changed. He repeats the exact same expression at one point, doesn't he? I didn't make a note of what it was. Have you got that? I don't think I have, but yeah, he is starting. He uses the same he, phrase. He's using the same speech patterns, um, and he he's trying to get rid of the dog. Just, just to release it and and let it go, but it keeps it keeps coming back to him. So he wraps it in his coat and puts it in the in the back of his car. And then the police appear and ask for his ID. And for no reason at all, he's just really difficult about it. He could just say, 
I'm a cleric. I'm here investigating. I'm outrank you. Go away. Instead, they hang around for long enough that they hear the dog whimpering in the back of the car and then Preston shoots everyone very excitingly. Yeah, <laughs> he does. There's lots of there's lots of jumping and leaping and yeah. cool posing and it's it's really great. It's a good job he's the only person who's had this um extra special training, hasn't he? Where he can see all the maths all the angles in his mind. Well, all the others who are there are just regular machine yeah. gun cops. He's a tetragrammaton cleric. He's very highly trained and they're not. They should have paid more attention in tetragrammaton school. You know, all poncing about. He goes home and starts hiding his interval behind the mirrors. Um, and has a very tense sparring scene with Brandt, which again is very stylish action, very exciting to watch, really nicely shot and edited. Um, you know, doesn't really go anywhere, but it's fun. And Brandt intimates that he knows Preston killed the guards from before, uh, and that they're now starting to crack down more on the sense offenders. Um, he helps some resistance people escape. Oh, this is oh, this is the bit with the firing squad, isn't it? Yes, yes, it, yes, it is. Um, where uh, Brandt asks him to shoot and even offers him his gun, but uh, he declines, and instead goes to Dupont and offers to be his instrument, um, concocting a plan for himself. Um, he meets uh, O'Brien again, and the relationship between the two is, I think, quite interesting because there's such intensity on both sides. I get the feeling that uh, Preston is attracted to her but doesn't understand how to cope with that. You do wonder how people ever end up forming relationships. There is a mention of friends, Uh is it O'Brien who says, I'm surprised you know the meaning of the word? or some, something Yeah, something like that. But, what, I mean, how would you ever end up marrying? How did he meet, how did he fall in love with his wife? How, if there were literally no emotions, would you just be assigned a, a partner? Maybe it's like... Um, it makes no sense. Maybe it's like it in... Would, um, if that... Uh, the, the, the lobster, where, you know, you can find a partner... You know, for the good of the state and have children and if you don't by a particular age then they'll just find one for you hmm. well again it wouldn't have taken he should have thought it through and it wouldn't have taken long to explain that and then that might have helped with this side of it because if he was now feeling genuine physical attraction or or whatever else it is, whatever it is that's attracting him to this woman and it was completely something he'd never felt before and something that we understand he wouldn't have felt for his wife. But we don't, we're not told that. No. We're led to believe that it's a bad, that the, that it's, that he, it's bad that he felt nothing when he led her to her death because he would have loved her and it's bad that he didn't feel anything when she died. But it's entirely plausible he didn't love her, in which case, 
He, that would be another explanation why he didn't feel anything when she died. He never had the opportunity to love her. Right. It's more that <laughs> as as time has gone on, and particularly he has a flashback where she's about to be led away and she breaks free and she kisses him. Hmm. And that feels more like forgiveness, that she understands why he did what he did and that it wasn't a a fully informed conscious choice on his part. Mm. Much like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, it's very, very richly symbolic. Um, Preston goes to the uh, photo archives to uh, look about something where he meets Brian Conley, who uh, ironically is a puppet of the state. Is that him? Yeah. Is that Brian Conley? Outrageous. You missed my hilarious joke. Yes, I got it. Good, thanks. I... <laughs> Can't even bring yourself to smile. <laughs> but he's uh, put in contact with uh, Partridge's uh, man in the resistance, uh, Jürgen, played by William Fickner from Everything, uh, another low to mid budget sci fi action movie regular. Uh, and was uh, like Christian Bale in The Dark Knight, in fact. Was he? Yes, he is the um, manager of the bank at the very beginning of the film that's raided by the Joker and his pals. <laughs> right. They head into the underground, and um, Preston is put through a polygraph test, and I think he admits that he's in love with Mary, I think. And that uh, he has a plan to kill father. Um, what on earth have I written here? Oh, he's uh, he goes home and there's a, there's a now a, a huge stockpile of intervals behind his mirror. And um, uh, why is he keeping them? Do they not have any way of disposing of waste in this society? This is another thing, another important plot point I've missed. There's presumably a way of disposing of the vials that is closely monitored. But that brings into question, if it's closely monitored, why why do they think that he's not returning anything? Yeah, so it can't be. It's like the dairy notice when you don't give them your milk bottles back. (laughs) They stop bringing you your yogurt. Um, so they decide that there'll be a, an instant revolution if father is assassinated. Yes, they do. And um, Apparently that's all it will take. Yeah. And they also have bombs in place ready to destroy all the infrastructure and machinery of this fascist state, just waiting for the right moment to, to set them off. Yeah, I mean, this is only a 90-minute movie. Hmm. Um, and as the as the music gets increasingly Hans Zimmer esque, um, you see what this what this is, what this should be, what this is, is part of the genre of people living in a futuristic city where the the drugs are in the air or the water supply, where there's no getting away from them, and all they have to do is destroy. There is a factory, there's a source of the of the physical manifestation of their repression. They can blow up the plant, like in Blake 7, where they put the stuff in the air supply or whatever. 
But it isn't. He's mixed that up with little pills, little capsules, because that's what happened in the Matrix. And thus, it's, the logic goes out the window. But then you have to have the question of how, do, how is it that people are able to resist this control that is literally everywhere, that's, that's completely unavoidable? Well, how do they get away from it? Yeah, but that, but my point is more. I don't really understand why so many people, why why it's as successful as it appears to why, be. Why, when how, when you can easily forget to take it, or or choose not to take it, or drop your little glass vial. There's so many things that could go wrong. Why? Anyway, never mind. Ah, I, I see. I'm not that picky. No, or, I know. As a viewer, it's only. If I'd written this, you see, I would have to have tightened up every one of these tiny little... I'm not going to call them plot holes. I'm not comic book comic book guy. They're, each one is not a plot hole, but when there's a critical mass of them, it, it brings down the whole, the whole structure. Sorry. Um, They're ready. Pre- They're ready. The resistance is ready. Preston starts to... He uh, flashes between um, Mary's upcoming execution and his wife's death. And rushes to see her before uh, the uh, inevitable, but uh, he's too late and has to watch through the little window as she's yes. as she's put in the incinerator and burned alive. I was slightly baffled by this plot point. Frankly, is it? I could only assume that this happens be- as a final trigger for him to go the whole hog, and but he's already promised to bring down. Uh, to bring down this system, but at this point, so it doesn't it doesn't change anything. At this point, now he has nothing left to lose, because right. his children his children are little robots. He has no personal ties to anyone. Um, but that doesn't. I don't understand uh, why they dress no. Mary up in a special red cloth before she's executed. In my day, death under the red cloth was reserved only for soldiers. <laughs> no, I, I'm just I was slightly baffled by that. Still am. Um, but he, this this proves to be the the thing that breaks him because he collapses crying in public. Hmm. Um, and Brant, with a great big smile on his face, um, arrests him. And my favourite shot in the movie is of uh, from Preston's point of view of Brant crouching down and punching straight into the camera to knock him out it's um it's like that bit in the simpsons where uh dr hibbert holds up the uh picture frame to say oh you've never even seen yourself in the mirror and holds up the picture frame and then punches someone through it <laughs> so they're taken to uh dupont and preston says well here we see i've brought you the traitor it's brant see i, I switched the gun at uh, the firing squad, and so that was the gun that shot all those guards. Um, see, I, I did it. So Brant's taken out to be shot, and as a reward, um, Preston wants to uh, be taken to meet number one. I mean, uh, meet father. <laughs> yes, and we're all we're all thinking, oh, good, we get to meet. We get, Sean we get to meet Sean Pertwee. Obvious, obviously, the man on the screen exists in real life because of course he does yeah. in all of these stories he's been seen in public as well he's... there's bits where he's delivering speeches at uh, a little lectern 
Really? Yeah. Right. Um, but uh, his house is going to be searched anyway, so he runs home and finds that his stash is gone. Uh, and it turns out that his son found them, and he had in fact been off his meds for the four years since his mother died, and so has his daughter. Um, Preston arranges for the res- resistance to be all arrested and heads off to meet father. Um, he's shown in by David Hemmings, who gives him a a quick spiel about, you know, don't try and shake hands with him or whatever. And they have very strict security, and he's uh, put into a lie detector test. And the first question is, how do you get a cleric to give you his gun? And the answer is that you ask him for it. Because it turns out that Brandt is actually alive and the whole thing was a trick. I quite like that, because it was unexpected. There were not many things in this film that did not go exactly the way I thought they would. And I I don't say that because I think I'm claimed to be some sort of genius for predicting plots. I am not at all. I'm normally taken by surprise, taken on a journey by the simplest of plots in this one. Because it was all all because the pieces of the jigsaw the various jigsaws from which they've been taken were so large, I could see exactly the picture that was being created. Mm. But no, this that was a nice twist. Uh, it turns out Preston has been uh, an unconscious puppet of the uh, of Dupont the whole time, and that father has in fact been dead for hundreds of years, and Dupont is the real power behind the throne, mm-hmm. and has used Preston to uh, expose the resistance, and uh, has been groomed for uh, destruction. So. Uh, says ah yes and now you've you've given yourself up willingly and not but and entirely without incident and preston says ah not without incident and all the lines on his his lie detector go dead because that's something you can do and then there's a big firefight and there's lots of running around and shooting and guards getting smashed in the face and jump because even the even the guards haven't had the special training. No, there's, there's jumping and leaping, and Preston gets blood on his nice white suit, and it's it's very exciting, and it's really well done. It's really nicely choreographed, and he's like throwing um, magazines around the room, and then doing handstands and clicking them into the the butts of his guns, and it's it's really exciting. <laughs> yes, um, and uh, he finally has a sword fight. With Brandt, and I think again a little twist is that the sword fight is over really quickly, mm-hmm. uh, and he just chops the front of Brandt's face off. Mm. Could happen. It, it could. So he gets into the uh, the final boss level. Yeah. Um, in Dupont's office, where he has art all over the place, and he and Dupont fight with the gun cutter at close quarters where neither of them can get a shot. And um, uh, Preston wins and shoots him, I think. So look, from the f- is it purely from the fact that he has a, a statue in his office that you're determining that uh, Brand DuPont. But DuPont, sorry, is a sense criminal all along. I mean, the only... Because I didn't pick up on that. I, I'm not surprised because I assumed that if we have... I assume two things that father that uh, father was not father any more than 
the Wizard of Oz is the man behind the the man behind the curtain, or or the or the face on the of Big Brother on the posters is real. Of course, we know that it's not. But the other thing I knew, knew is that the people at the top would all be hypocrites. But I didn't see that revealed clearly enough for my satisfaction. And the idea that the um, the dis extravagant displays of emotion that people like Brandt have been showing us throughout the film were deliberate and clues to the fact that they were he and possibly Dupont were not on the special stuff all along. Yeah. I th I th it's not made as clear as it could be, but I think that's certainly what's intended. Hmm. Um, Preston destroys the transmission suite and the explosions start going off and uh, the resistance and... Like at the end of uh, Fight Club. Oh, yes. And probably other the resist The resistance and the, the children start smiling. <laughs> yes. And um, the guards are immediately overrun by all the resistance fighters coming out of every nook and cranny. That's all it took. That's all, literally all they needed. And there's a big close-up on Preston's eye, like um, at the start of Blade Runner as he uh, fingers the ribbon and finally breaks into a great big smile. And then it ends. Yeah, it does. So nothing I've Dip said has persuaded you that uh, you might have judged it too harshly? No. Okay. I think I was very fair. by by. I don't bandy around... Um, over the top terms like unwatchable it was perfectly watchable and there was plenty to enjoy in it but I w will not backtrack on the fact that <laughs> it drove me mad <laughs> <laughs> I was I, mean, I wasn't shouting at the screen I was having a I was having a perfectly pleasant conversation with it so yeah I mean <laughs> just I more like a, a disappointed teacher talking to a recalcitrant pupil that just hadn't quite put enough effort in I mean, that's a quote for the poster right there. <laughs> uh, this uh, Vimmer... Dupont's office. Dupont's office should have been the most opulent. It should have gone through the doors and it should have been lined with books and tapestries and records and playing. It should have been the most sensorily, sensorily decadent place we saw, if that's the point of the whole. Now, that would not have been subtle to show that the man at the top, the man behind the curtain, was somebody who <laughs> but th that's two different stories if the story is of a ruling class who don't believe in the cant that they're spouting and force and don't live by the rules that they're imposing on the rest of society well that's one story and that might be what we th think the communist ruling classes were like uh, maybe we think stalin was was gorging himself on pate de foie gras every night he loved westerns. Yeah, so that's one story. The other story is that they genuinely believe this and they're fanatics. Now, the the religious terminology, the fact that these are clerics, there are, there are plenty of clues to the idea that these people believe it from the top down. So I, this is why I'm annoyed, because <laughs> it's not clear to me which of these, which... Insufficient. Which it was. It's not clear to me. There's a great story to be told where, where emotion about a... 
society where emotions are controlled so carefully that the slightest hint of a, an emotion on somebody's face could trigger alarm bells, like that episode of Doctor Who with the robots that uh, do you remember the, one of the early Peter Capaldi's oh yeah, the, the, emo- the, the yeah, emoji the robots the emoji faces, yeah. yeah I mean it's there are lots of ways you could go with this story and I, j- I'm, I don't know which way the writer thought he was going it should be clear to me, even in 90 minutes <laughs> what he thought he was trying to say Insu- and it's frustrating that insufficient purity of concept oh very good yes it's a big idea but not pure enough it's not executed not clear. Uh, with, uh, purely enough hmm. I think it would work um, or it would be sufficient to sustain a 90 minute story um but yeah, I I I see what you mean. It's nothing, just that nothing. It's it's not fully enough thought through to properly work. There's too many loose ends, and it feels like there's been awkwardness in trying to get it to work, and that relates to the reason the film was given such limited release. Um. The original distributor sold the international rights piecemeal and the film made its budget back just from selling the international rights. So to avoid incurring a loss, the film was given a limited release with little publicity in the US so that they weren't risking money by spending it when they were already in the black. (laughs) And And who is it who is synonymous with that kind of release strategy, it was the Weinsteins, who right. had a reputation for monkeying around with other people's scripts and changing things so that they didn't make sense anymore because they weren't particularly bright guys. Yeah. Right, did they? Um, well, if they didn't understand science fiction, then... Uh, so I'll have to tell Yeah. Either the writer-director didn't understand science fiction or they didn't. Or maybe between the, between the three of them. They... Uh, well, Vimmer's next film was Ultraviolet, which reprised the Gunkata idea. But now, instead of a society that's intolerant of sense criminals, it's a society that's intolerant of vampire superheroes. Right. And it stars Mila Jovovich because she's the patron saint of mid-budget sci-fi action movies. Mm-hmm. His only other film was the 2020 remake of Children of the Corn. I cannot give you a, a definitive answer on whether or not it features Gunkatter. But <laughs> I hope there was a lot of like scythe duels. Yeah. Yeah, let's hope so. Yeah, I yeah. You got to switch up your your weapons. Yeah, you got to never, gotta, never you've, do two more than one yeah, successive fight with gotta, the same weapon. You've got to keep it fresh. Yeah. And if nothing else, this is a film all about freshness and originality. <laughs> you see, I don't want I was going to say this a minute ago. It's an easy target to criticise it because it borrows so heavily. But there isn't necessarily a problem. How many times have we seen, particularly in science fiction, one often sees a film and thinks, oh, this is a bit like, it's like X meets Y with a dash of Z. But the particular combinations and the and the fresh approach can... Um, they can work well. Can make that a plus. Can make that a plus rather than... And, you know, we're Doctor Who fans. All the best Doctor Who stories were ripped off of something else. Not, Doctor Who is not a, a programme known for its originality. It's all about 
knowing, picking interesting ingredients and combining them in novel new ways, pinch of, pinch of seasoning, I think it borrows, so it's not the fact that it's unoriginal. I think it borrows too many disparate ideas and doesn't quite know why it's borrowed, <laughs> doesn't quite understand. It doesn't know how to fit them together no. in a way that is a single coherent environment or worldview. I think they're all taken super, very superficially, which is why they don't, and applied to something that's hollow, in my opinion, fairly hollow at its core. And the one so. thing about the film that is completely original, the gun cutter, mm-hmm. then feels oddly out of place. Yeah, it does. I liked your... You did win me over on that, your explanation of the how it tied into the themes of logic... Um, logic over emotion I guess mm. <laughs> I'd be interested to see how it's used in ultraviolet I think there's a bit more visual effects assistance there rather than just stunt choreography and editing and editing yeah because that's that's the, the thing that really sells it is that it's they're doing this for real there's like maybe there's a little bit on wires here and there but it's it's performers and stuntmen doing all these moves for real and not being supported by CGI. That's why I think the, the John Wick movies have really set a new trend for action movies because it's they're they're all really doing this for real and there's these these mm. these long medium shots of Keanu Reeves beating the shit out of forty people because it makes I... it all real. Mm. Yep, I'm a sucker for that. I didn't dislike it. I was found it amusingly frustrating. If you want to put that on the that's that's a pithy equation yeah. poster. I think that's that that'll sell a few Blu-rays. Thanks to Paul for making time for this recording. Cinema Limbo is on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Acast, with over 110 episodes available. So please download, review, and subscribe. We're also on YouTube, on Twitter at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please pop a penny in the box to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, remember, tread softly, for you tread on my dreams. been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com. Mm-hmm.